And when we're in divorce, it feels a little bit like we're in war. We're kind of in survival mode. And when we're in survival mode, we will do things for ourselves. Look, marriages fail primarily because of a lack of communication and respect. Mm. We want to make sure that those children are nurtured and as much as possible protected from conflict. Welcome to another episode of Rich in Relationship. And today I'm with my friend, Bill Gentry. How are you, Bill? Rich, I'm doing great. Thank you for the opportunity to be here with a, uh, a wonderful parent coordinator. <laughs> and I'm far more than that, sir. I'm a husband, a father, and a man in the world. Today, we're here to talk about Bill's new book, I Want Out. And in case you haven't figured it out, Bill is a family lawyer or matrimonial attorney, depending on how you like to say it. And he's written this awesome book, I Want Out, A Woman's Guide to Finding Peace through divorce. And, you know, as someone who's done a lot of work in this area, finding peace in divorce is really the goal. I mean, we think it's about, I want to win. We think it's about, I want to get out of this with as much money or as low cost as possible. But if we can find peace in the divorce process, those other things become even more possible. Absolutely. You know, peace, not having to walk on eggshells around a, a problematic husband, and not having to preserve marital harmony there when your kids are, are under stress and you are too. So, so important. Yeah. So, Bill, why a woman's guide to finding peace through divorce? Well, well, I'll tell you, Rich, I, I've been doing family law for over 35 years. And one of the very first people who sat down in my office was a young woman, 19 or 20 years old, whose husband had, had abused her emotionally and physically. And as I sat there and I listened to her story, I thought, how can I not help this woman? How can I not help her achieve a life that she deserves and that her husband doesn't believe she deserves? And that really, it felt so good. I felt like I was fulfilling my passion. Yeah. It sounds like it's a calling for you. Absolutely. It absolutely is. Right. And that's really important. You know, sometimes we do things to make money. Nothing wrong with that. Got to pay the bills. And sometimes we have a calling in life, something that you feel called to do. And when we can put those two things together, it's better for everybody. It really is. And what I've tried to do in our firm here is to create the same compassion for the underdog, really. So often, uh, you know, it, it's a matter of, of helping people who have been the underdog in a relationship, who have been abused physically and emotionally and helping them envision that better, brighter future that lies ahead. And, uh, you know, this is a very, folks, this is a very thorough book. I mean, Bill takes us through every phase of the divorce process, you know, right from before you think about getting divorced to afterwards when you get to actually attempting to live the agreement that you've made together. And if it's all right, Bill, I'd like to just read a piece from, from your book. Would that be okay? Absolutely, please. All right, so this, uh, on page 10, Bill talks about what it's like to be married to a narcissist. And the reason why I'm reading this, folks, is pretty much everyone I've talked to who gets divorced, pretty much, who's in a contentious divorce, feels like the person on the other side is a narcissist. And we'll talk a little more about that in a minute. But uh, actually, let's talk a little bit more about that now. What's great about this paragraph that Bill's written is it helps you to see what a narcissist really is. 
And the reason why is like when we're all, when we're in divorce, it feels a little bit like we're in war. We're kind of in survival mode. And when we're in survival mode, we will do things for ourselves at the expense of other people that we might not do under normal conditions. So I think, you know, in the divorce process, particularly if it's contentious, it's possible for people to show up in a self-centered way. But what makes the difference between being self-centered and a narcissist? Here's what Bill says. To the outside world, if you're married to a narcissist, you might look like a woman who has it all. That's because that's what a narcissistic husband wants the world to see. In public, he's usually extremely charismatic and, at least publicly, treats his wife like a queen, opening doors and ordering champagne and behaving like the perfect gentleman. Everyone sees how handsome and generous and funny and charming he is and thinks she's so lucky to have him. But everyone has no idea what goes on behind closed doors. Tell us a little more about that, Bill. That's absolutely true. That old song, no one knows what goes on behind closed doors, is so true. I mean, I've heard from literally thousands of women over the years about how you know they think they've married Prince Charming. This is a wonderful fella. He, he's nice looking. He's hardworking. He, he makes money. But then they go home. And then it's a process. It's almost like the drip, 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 steady dripping uh, where uh, you know, husband starts driving away wife's friends and families. You know, this particular friend starts doing something that husband doesn't like. Well, I don't want to hang out with her and her husband. This other friend does something that he doesn't like. I don't want to hang out. And that I don't really care about being around your family. And pretty soon, the wife's circle of support, friends, family, has narrowed where it's just the husband. And then he can give or withhold uh, emotional support feeling, caring, in order to better manipulate his wife. It's a horrible situation, but we see it very, very often. You know, and um, believe it or not, I'm going to stick up for the narcissist for a second, but not really stick up with. I think with narcissists or people who have narcissistic tendencies, I'll talk about that in a second, uh, it's not always like they're sitting there plotting and scheming. A lot of this is happening on an unconscious level. You know, so like we're 80 or 90% unconscious mind, all of us. That's like our operating system. And in their conscious mind, the narcissist believes that they really are a great husband. They really, they really believe they are honest and caring and good and all those things. And they really believe they're doing what's best for the family. What they don't recognize is that underneath it, what's driving holding the door open and all those other things is how good do I look? You know, how much am I getting my needs met? Right. And so, what makes the narcissist distinct from someone who maybe is just a little self-centered is they are completely overwhelmingly driven by their need to put themselves first. I mean, it's in every aspect of their life. Rich, that's an excellent point. And one of the things that, you know, as you do this longer, you start to see patterns and trends and you start to understand how these things work. And I can't tell you how many times I've had women come in and say, my husband is X, Y, and Z, classic narcissistic traits. And I say, well, tell me about his father. Mm. And she goes, and it's like the light bulb goes off. She goes, he's the same way. Uh -huh. Why didn't I see that? I said, well, yeah. blame yourself. But you can see father to son to son on and on just like this. And that brings me to a very important point, which is that so many times women will come in and they will say, Bill, I can put up with my husband's uh, attitude and demeanor. And I say, but 
what kind of behavior are you modeling for your son and your daughter? Mm. And that's, again, that's another light bulb moment where they say, and I say, look, are you teaching your son that this is how you treat women? Mm -hmm. Are you teaching your daughter that you put up with this sort of thing? And at that point, they realize, I cannot keep doing this to my children, not just myself. I've I've worked with a lot of women who are divorcing and divorced from narcissists and the occasional guy, but it seems to be, it seems to be narcissism tends to show up more on the male side for reasons I don't fully understand the male side than the female side. And, uh, you know, what I found over time is that there are people who have what we call a diagnosis of narcissism, which means that a psychiatrist or a therapist would look at them and say, you are clearly a 10 on a scale of one to 10. And then there are people who fall on a, the scale. Uh, and those people who are a 10, they're often very, it's very destructive. Uh, and the lower those that you get on the scale, the more benign that narcissism can become, uh, you know, and how, you know, that decision about uh, how is it impacting my children can have a lot to do with that. I have one client who I've been working with for years, actually. She came to me first uh, she to figure out, should I divorce the guy? Then she like went out and got a six-figure job, making mad money, divorced him. And then she was like, all right, how do I make it safe for my child to have a relationship with him? And now she's been figuring out how to help him adjust his behavior around the child, you know, because he's actually relatively benign. I mean, you know, on a scale of one to 10. Uh, and she does that by appealing to his sense of how does it, how does it look when little Johnny goes to school and says, daddy was yelling at me. <laughs> right. It's, and then he goes, oh my God, I can't have. I can't have little Johnny doing that and yelling at him about it isn't going to stop him from doing it. So maybe I can figure out another way to deal with my anger. It's it's kind of wild. Hey, so let's take this conversation to the next step. Which Can I comment on that? Well, yeah, please. You raised an excellent point there, which is that it is possible to use a narcissist's own drive to be looked at and respected and loved against him to say, if you do this to our child, people will look at you and love you less. And I think that's very important. And I think you just articulated it in a way that I'd never really thought about in those terms, but a woman can do that, can help use that as a tool, especially post-divorce. Sorry to interrupt yeah, you. No, 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 it's good. But I, I think it really depends on where they are on that scale. Correct. Like if they're all the way on a 10, he's just, his prime motivation is for her to lose and for him to win and to squash her at all costs, married, divorced, whatever. If he's lower on the scale, he might be open to that kind of thing. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a important qualifier. And so uh, on page 87, you start to talk about the parenting plan, right? And so, you know, those of you who are thinking about getting divorced, uh, I'm going to actually let Bill, why don't you explain to people the distinction between a parenting plan and custody and what does all that mean? Well, and of course, I practice in Georgia, but it's my understanding that around the country, it's largely done the same way. Whether the, the husband and wife reach an agreement as to how things should be done with regard to the children or whether the court imposes it because they can't reach an agreement, the parenting plan is a critical document. It will say who has primary custody or it's a 50-50 custody, who can make the legal decisions for the children. And it will also detail what time the children will spend with which parent and when. But I think almost more importantly 
there are other factors that at least go into our parenting plans that say things like, don't denigrate the other parent. Mm -hmm. Do things that will embarrass or otherwise put the children out of love with the other parent. Things like that. And so those are critically important. Now, what I will also tell you, and I've heard this so many times from judges, is the judges will say, mom and dad work together. I would love to hear that you guys have simply put the parenting plan in a drawer and you're working so well together that you don't need it. But that's a little unrealistic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, here in New York, well, I'm not a lawyer, of course, but you know, Bill, Bill and I have known each other for years, uh, originally through my wife, who is a matrimonial attorney. Um, the way she explains it now in New York, we have the parenting plan and then we've got, uh, the custodial agreement and cust custodial agreement tends to be about just name. We now have decision-making as a whole separate unit from how are we going to parent together? Um, and those are kind of, kind of key areas. And so what I'm curious about, or what I'd like to talk about is as you get into the parenting plan with your clients, inevitably you've got someone who's somewhere on that scale of one to 10, one being mother Teresa and 10 being you know, Adolf Hitler. I'm, I'm just, maybe, maybe no one, no narcissist is quite that bad, but I'm, you know, I'm, I mean, pretty, they're pretty, they're pretty much about, it's a pretty bad what's over the years. Yeah. Maybe worse. All right. Worse than Adolf Hitler. But you know, let's, so let's say you're, you, you're negotiating the parenting plan with your husband because we're here talking about how women can find peace th through the divorce process. And he's triggered and when we're triggered, we tend to we tend to not be Mother Teresa. Let's be honest. When we're triggered, we tend to be more on the other end of the scale. So, how do you help women to in that situation where the, on the other side there's a narcissist, or on the other side there's someone who's being self centered because they're a little triggered? How do you help them find peace in that parenting plan process? Well, most women who come to me who are married to a narcissist already have developed certain strategies, adaptations to deal with the narcissistic husband. It's just a fact. Uh, and, and, and they come to the conclusion that it's not working anymore. They reach out and then we have a conversation and start the process. Um, what I try to do, and I try to do this in conjunction with counselors too, uh, is help them change their adaptation, the things that they do uh, to in, in a more healthy way. In other words, uh, instead of just swallowing it, um, communicating. Mm -hmm. Okay, because look, marriages fail primarily because of a lack of communication and respect. Mm, so true. Yeah, and being uh, a communicator, but not being triggered. You know that that old saying. You know, uh, dance like nobody's watching, but email and text just like it's going to be read in court. We see that all. <laughs> Actually, I hadn't heard that old saying before. I that's a, that's a new one for me, but I like it. <laughs> My wife might disagree with the dancing like nobody because I'm not a great dancer. Well, that's because she's always watching. <laughs> that's exactly. But the whole thing about the sign uh, of a good marriage, Bill. Well, you know, 36 plus years. There you, you go. You know, and the and the cool thing about that is, as she's told me many times, the fact that I see the consequences of bad marital conduct has helped us have the strong marriage that we have. We've got two grown children who are, are wonderful people. Uh, and, and, you know, I think our marriage is stronger today than it's ever been. But that's not to say that there are plenty of marriages out there that should come to an end because they're, they're dysfunctional in a horrible yep. way. Yeah. So you've gone through the process of the parenting plan and all the good stuff. You come to a legal set settlement and, uh, we get to the subject of co-parenting after divorce. And I, if it's all right, I'd like to read another piece of your book. 
You're I love this. All right, so Bill's talking about his client, Allison. He says, look, I told Allison, your ex-husband is very difficult. I think he's going to continue to try and push you around and do what he wants to do. Don't be surprised if you wind up back in front of the judge and have to order him to follow the parenting plan. Yeah, how often does that happen? Well, so a scenario that I first started to notice 10 or 15 years ago was if we reach a settlement, but because there's something, uh, let me back up a step. There's something um, clarifying and empowering about actually having to go to court and have a contested final trial because seeing the judge up on the bench in the black robe with bailiffs with guns on their hip kind of tells the narcissist that I got to take this situation more serious. Yeah. And, and one of the pieces of advice that I give to my clients is that if we don't do that, if we settle, you know, depending on the person, how far is this guy up on the narcissistic scale, you may have to take him back to court on a mo- what we call a motion for- Or maybe he's just a, let's be honest, maybe he's just an asshole. <laughs> yeah, let's throw out narcissists. Maybe he's just a jerk. <laughs> but seeing the judge up there in the black robe with the bailiffs at some point, and the judge says, you will obey this parenting plan because when I agreed to it, I made it an order of the court. And if you disobey, I can and I will put you in jail. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? When the guy hears this, a lot of times it's like, oh, that's his light bulb moment. Yeah. Really need to follow this. So that's what I, when I see one of my clients is married to somebody like that, I say, be prepared to have to do this in the future so that he will take you seriously on this parenting plan. Yeah. A, a lesson that, I've worked with a lot of clients on is understanding that even though their husband may be hell bent to make them feel like they're under his thumb and under his control, when it comes to the courtroom, that whole game changes. Because in the courtroom, it's not about making the judge his love slave. It, you know, the judge it represents an authority and he's so he's the, the narcissist is all about looking good in front of the judge uh, and all the behaviors that he's exhibited in private. He will never exhibit in public. It's a completely. And so, yeah, that scene of the judge up they're higher than us, physically higher than us with, you know, the, the law and, and and the firearms and the badge, you know, the gun and the badge are always reminders of where where we stand. That's huge. But Rich, you know, working as a parenting coordinator with parents and trying to get them to cooperate, not all husbands and wives or ex-husbands and ex-wives have dysfunctional relationships. Very often, uh, it's simply a matter of of looking at the world in different respects. And and you know from all of your years of experience that a lot of times you can nudge people in the right direction where they have a happy, productive, post-divorce co-parenting situation. Can you tell that this is my friend, folks? You see what opening he gave me here? Yeah. But actually, here's the, right, here's the beauty of parent coordination work. Um, it is an opportunity for two people to step out of warfare for a minute uh, in a more intimate environment and and rediscover what they liked about each other. It doesn't mean they're going to rediscover love, but rediscover the things that they share in common, which you know, usually are that they love the child, the well-being of the child, 
And the beauty of parent coordination is when we do that work, it's a lot like um, mediation of any kind. I'm like not divorce mediation, but of any kind. You know, when we do that work, because they're, we're no longer in the, the court system, which by nature can feel a little contentious, there's an opportunity to, if the person's just showing up as selfish because they're feeling in survival mode, it's an opportunity to step out of survival mode and establish kind of a new basis for for child rearing together. And that's what's so cool about it. You know, one of the things that warms my heart more than anything else is when a divorce client comes in and the divorce has been cranking along for a while. And she says, uh, you know, maybe it's a Monday like this. She said, you know, Sunday night, my soon to be ex and I took our kids out to dinner. It was civil. It was wonderful. The kids loved it. And I'd, I love to hear stories like that because that does happen. Yeah. Do do parents who are divorcing, do they need to come out of this being BFFs, best friends forever? Well, I mean, in a perfect world, yes. But if they if that's their frame of mind, they may never have started the divorce process to begin with. Yeah. So what's a more likely desirable outcome in the long well, run? Yeah, because you know as well as I do that let's say the kids are 10 and 15 years old. In a few years, they're going to graduate from high school. You know what? At 10 or 15, a parenting plan might not even matter because the judge can't make the kids follow the parenting plan the way he can make the parents. Well, and and you've heard the situation I have, which is dad's really angry because mom can't get the 17-year-old to go visit with him. And, and you know, the 17-year-old might be six foot three and 250 pounds. Uh-huh. 120 pound mom going to hog time and throw him in the back of the car. And mm-hmm. It's not going to happen. Yeah. Judge that. Yeah. Hey, so listen. Bill wrote some great guidelines for going. For, he's, the title of the subchapter is From Light Partners to Parenting Partners. So I just want to read you. There's five basic rules here. He says, co-parent respectfully. Why don't you tell us a little bit of why, what does it mean to co-spend? When, when you've seen it work best, oh, we're going to go through the, all five of them together and you're going to edumacate us on this. What does it mean to co-parent respectfully? Well, it's to show value to the other parent and what their needs are. You know, you may have a situation where your ex is getting remarried and his marriage is going to happen on a weekend and it's your weekend with the kids. Okay, come on. Are you going to be the person who's going to get in the way of letting the kids go and be there for his remarriage? Change your wedding or give up. (laughs) Exactly. That's not showing a lot of grace, understanding and respect. Right. And I've had that situation happen a number of times. And in the few times we go to court, guess what? The judge is really mad at the mom for not letting, you know, not letting this happen. And the reverse has happened where dad won't let mom do it. Okay. But that's valuing the other person's opinion, helping set priorities, helping work through these issues, because that's what judges want to see. They really don't want to get into, you know, she got the child to me five minutes late. He got the child 10 minutes late, that sort of thing. That just drives them up the wall and makes the judge disrespect you. And remember, at least in our area, the same judge will be working on your case until that judge retires or your kids age. We don't have that going on here. Unfortunately, yeah. we change judges almost as much as we change underwear. Okay. <laughs> uh, which is a problem because you have to restate the case over and over and over. Um yeah. Or if you have a judge you don't like, if you just filibuster long enough, you might get one you do like. Yeah. Uh, so it sounds like co-parenting respectfully 
is not only respecting the other parent, but it's also there's it sounds like there's an element in there, like what upsets the judge is what is really in terms of the well-being of the children, what is really best for them. I mean, if you're the child and one of your parents is getting married and you get closed out because it's not his or her weekend, how are you going to feel about that? And what is it? You know, what's going to be the impact on your life that you weren't there for that event? Exactly. And it, there's going to be, depending on the age of the child, probably a lot of resentment there because who doesn't want to be at a wedding? It's a lot of fun, especially if you've got a flower child or something like that, yeah. you know, or, or, you know, an older child who may be part of the wedding party or even an usher. All right. Lloyd, sorry, let me interrupt you. Point two, avoid alienating your child from your ex and any new wife he may have. Well, that's that kind of, we're kind of in that world. Well, that was the wedding. This is after the wedding. So avoid alienating your child from your ex and any new wife he may have. Tell us more. Yeah. You mean, what I try to do is, you know, kids, especially the younger ones, don't understand why mom and dad are fighting and they get the knotted up stomach, you know, and they're upset. They're confused. They don't sleep well, you know, and that's, I was talking with a client the other day and they said, the first thing I did when I decided to file for divorce and they said, I went and talked to the school counselor so that the school counselor could be on the lookout for things that might be going on with my child. If the teacher comes in and says, oh, little Johnny is really upset. Well, then I can say, well, they're going through a divorce. What kind of remedial steps can we take? But that's, you've got to show that respect for the other parent. Mm, love it. Next one is don't withhold visitation, at least not without a very strong reason, like abuse or risk to the child. So that sounds like, can I chime in on this one? Yes. Yeah. One that I hear a lot is he hasn't been paying his alimony so or child support, so I, you know, I'm not going to let him see them. That's bad. That's punishing the child for the sins of the father, and you should never do that. Now, I mean, there are other steps you can take. You know, you could file this motion for contempt or whatever. Uh, but I have had had women come in and say, "Dad showed up Saturday afternoon to pick up the child, and I could smell alcohol, and he was stumbling." Mm. Guess what? You don't let the kid go at that point. That's and right. Stake, invite the police to come, okay? Because yeah. they'll they'll breathalyze him and may haul him off or have him driven over to your house inebriated. But, you know, it's rare I say don't follow a court order because it's important. But in the right situation, you should give that due consideration. Yeah. And if you have a husband who has a potential alcohol problem, it may be that you're concerned, and I've had clients who've had this situation, maybe that you're concerned that he's going to show up sober and come back drunk with the child. And in that case, you really, you're really going to need to educate your child on what to do when they're around people who are drinking, not when dad is drinking, but when they're around people when, who drink. If you're, if you're in a car with someone who's been drinking, call me. If you're, Or if, they, if someone wants to get you into a car with them when they've been drinking, no matter who it is. You know, refuse to go, uh, get, reach out to another adult. I mean, it may take stuff like that because the fact is even the judge can't control the behavior of the other parent. And Rich, that nuance is very important because you're not denigrating the dad. You're just talking about in a situation that could occur. And on that note, don't go out of your way to be nasty to your ex, no matter how much he might deserve it. <laughs> Tell us more about that. Well, again, that's a situation where all you're doing is you're hurting the child who doesn't understand. I mean, if, if the child is 17, that's one thing. But if the child is seven. And you know what? Even, even 17, it's different. Seven. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not appropriate. And I, I, I can't tell you how many times 
I've had judges yell at both parties and say, y'all got to stop doing that. That's not a way to raise a child. You are sowing the seeds for this child to grow up and not be the person you want them to be. But, you know, speaking developmentally, right, from zero to seven, you remember I talked about that unconscious mind, 80 or 90% of where we are. Zero to seven is where that programming for that operating system is laid in. So if we're talking about another parent critic and children internalize, we've all internalized our parents, right? Like how many times have you said, oh my God, I'm being my mom or oh my God, I'm being my dad or thank God I'm being my mom or thank God I'm being my dad, depending on how you look at it, right? So at zero to seven, if you're saying your dad is such a lying, thieving, conniving, that child is internalizing that my dad is and therefore I am, you know, and that's why that's so important. At 17, they're not internalizing it in the same way but it's still triggering something inside of them that they just don't need. They don't need triggering with, you know, so at any age, avoid this. And that leads to the, the really the golden rule. Here's Bill says, don't forget that your children come first. I think just about every state in the union, their family laws say something about what's in the child's best interest in some way, shape or form. Uh, and putting them first is so critically important because, again, your legacy on this planet is going to be, in large part, the children that you leave behind. And if you don't feel like you've done the best job raising them to be the best people they can be, I mean, that that's the way I feel. And I think most people feel that way, too. Yeah, part of what I love about the work I get to do, uh, I got into this work because my parents had a very messy relationship. And uh, my brother, who is... 59, uh, still hasn't fully recovered from it. Uh, you know, from the, uh, he's just a really brilliant guy who hasn't developed himself in life. We're just going to leave it at that. Right. Um, and so, I, you know, I, and it's very painful, by the way, very painful for me to see him in that state. And so part of why I do this work is all, it's about uplifting the well being of those children. You know, and I, and I suspect there's a lot of that in this for you as well. You know, we want to, we want to make sure that those children are nurtured and as much as possible protected from conflict. Yeah, that's just so critically important. And, you know, the zero to seven, you're mentioning the programming of the little minds, so important. And if we don't take that seriously, if we do put viruses and bugs into their programming, bad things will happen down the road. Yeah, you know, and on the other side, no matter how hard we try, uh, we will put viruses and bugs in their programming. The question is, are we working at being more and more positive or are we allowing ourselves to slip into those uh, that kind of negative dialogue and dynamic that's going to make it even worse? Right. No, I absolutely agree. Catherine and I used to joke, uh, no matter what, our children were going to therapy. <laughs> no matter what we did, it, like, and that's probably good. The question was, what kind and how much? <laughs> Well, Bill, this has been great. Um, any last words you have for our for our audience today? Oh, yeah. How can they get your book? I'm sorry, I haven't done this well. How can they get your book? This is a great book. I want out. And even if you're not in Georgia, this is a great book. Yeah, it's got some Georgia on it, but there's some great advice for any woman who wants out. Absolutely. So, you know, you can go to Amazon, you can go to Barnes & Noble, you can ask at your local bookstore, you can get it in an ebook format. You know, we, we've got, we've had a number of women who've said, look, I want to read it, but the last thing I want to do is have this sitting on my bedside table. Um, get it an ebook version, Kindle, you know, uh, or Amazon. 
And it's it's really important because that way you can read it at your leisure. We've had a number of clients who travel uh, and they, they see maybe see the book in the airline bookstore and they don't want a copy of it in their hand. They want it and they'll read it on the plane. They'll read it on their business trip and read it on the way back. So that's, you know, that that's felt helpful. Nice. And you may be a man. It's actually a great book for a man to read, too. Maybe you're a man who's getting divorced and you want to see through her eyes. This is a, even though it's written by a man. It's actually, there's some great insights into what the woman's experience is in the divorce process. Because Bill, how, you've been doing this, how long you say you've been doing this? 30 years? Over 37 years. Over 37 years. Bill's seen it all. And how can people find you, sir? You can find me, gentrylawfirmgeorgia.com. Uh, and you just raised a really good point, Rich, that I'd never thought of before, which is, let's say you and your wife are having a rocky time. Get this book. Read it. It will help you, I believe, understand what your wife is thinking about. It may help save your marriage. Yeah, and it will help you also understand, you know, I think very often when men are faced with divorce as a possibility, you know, they don't, we don't fully understand what the costs are, how long the journey might be. And, you know, men are very goal oriented, right? So we're just like, for a woman, by the way, for a woman, I want out is the beginning of an exploration. Right. For a man, I want out is that's where I'm going <laughs> and I, and damn the costs. Right. Because we're wired differently. Men are very linear and women explore the ecology. But I'm going to encourage you as a man, uh, if you're faced with the possibility of divorce, instead of being linear, really understand what the cost is time wise, what the cost is financially, what the cost is to your children and what the cost is to you. You know, if, uh, men have a tendency to think, oh, this marriage isn't working. I'm just going to chuck it and start fresh. And I'm going to tell you, someone who chucked it and started fresh, the problem was that I brought me to the next marriage. So, you know, I, I, and I still had to change, right, to have that marriage work. So, men, it might be worth thinking about the cost because it might be that just through making some changes in yourself, right, it might be that you're you look like you're being a narcissist, but you really aren't. Just through making some changes in yourself and understanding how to really show that you care, how to show that you really are thinking of the other person, you might turn the whole thing around. And one last thing about that, Bill, I'm, I see you got something you want to add to it, but let me just say this. Women will serve men with divorce papers hoping that they will change, right? You, like, you need to understand, if you have a woman who's saying, I want a separation, I want a divorce, what they're really saying to you is, wake the heck up, this isn't working right? Men will say, I want a divorce. They've decided and it's a done deal. It's like very hard for a man to back down once inside. But women, are they're, they're not wired the way we are. So if you have a wife who's who's saying this to you, there might actually still be hope. No, absolutely. And, and marriages fail essentially because of a lack of respect. And you can demonstrate your respect by getting this book, reading it, and being able to talk to your wife about the things that she's thinking about. And, and that's that's pretty much how I would close it. And the other side of this is uh, I'm working with a man right now whose wife actually divorced him. And then he started changing, trying to win her back. And her message to him over and over and over is too little, too late, too little, too late. Yeah. And so what you need to understand about a woman is once she's crossed that line, she may never return to the well. You know, yeah. So like you got to get that once you get to that, once you get to the actual divorce, the game may be over, but until you hit that, there's a lot more hope. Bill, thank you so much for your time. Any final words for our audience before we go? 
Rich, just a pleasure being with you and the great work you do as a parenting coordinator is so important. No, it really is. It really is to help because a lot of times the, the issues are that the two people are having trouble seeing things from the other's point of view and you help facilitate that, make that happen. And you're doing great work on behalf of these children because ultimately they're your client. Let me speak up for Bill. Ladies, if you think this is just two guys talking nice about each other, I want you to know that I know Bill Gentry's wife, right? I know her for years, all right? And if Bill were full of beans, she wouldn't be with him. She's a straight arrow. They, these people, these folks have an awesome partnership. Uh, you know, she, she, they are really in each other's corner and they really do understand about relationships, right? Which I know is hard to believe because men aren't generally, we don't think about relationships very well, but Bill really does understand about relationships. If you're in his neck of the woods and you're thinking about getting divorced, you should give him a call and he'll help you talk through and explore it. He's not going to say, you're thinking about getting divorced? Let's go. That's just not who he is. He's going to talk it through with you and make sure that it's the right choice for you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rich. It was a pleasure being here today. Well, we'll do this again soon.